Welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host, Yiming Ha. Joining us today is Professor Mara Dykstra, who is currently an assistant professor of history at Caltech, although in the fall of 2023, she will begin a new position as assistant professor of history at Yale University. As a historian of late imperial China, her research interests are on bureaucratic, economic, and legal institutions of empire and their implications for political and social interactions in quotidian contexts. Professor Dykstra received her PhD from UCLA and was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. In addition, she has held numerous residential fellowships and visiting positions in Europe and Asia. Today, she joins us to talk about her forthcoming book, Uncertainty in the Empire of Routine, The Unexpected Administrative Revolution of the 18th Century Qing State, which is scheduled to be released in the summer of 2022, on an administrative revolution that took place in 18th century China and the new information regime that arose in the Qing dynasty. So thank you, Professor Dykstra, for coming to the show. My pleasure. So before we begin talking about your forthcoming book, I think some introductions to basic historiographical concepts or where institutions are in order. So when people speak of imperial China, one of the first things they think about is bureaucracy, right? Bureaucracy comes to mind. We know that China was a bureaucratic state very early on. And paperwork and the flow of information up and down are hallmarks of bureaucracy. So can you start off by just briefly describing how the bureaucratic practice played out in the Qing state. What are some of the major bureaucratic institutions or concepts as a means of introducing to our listeners how information flowed in the Qing dynasty? Absolutely. When I shared an early draft of the manuscript that became this book with a colleague in Russian history, when they gave it back to me with comments, their first question was, what is a memorial? And the profoundly fundamental role that the memorial plays in defining how late imperial bureaucracy works is so fixed in my imagination that the idea of even having to explain something like that completely caught me off guard. And I think that it's something that a lot of historians of China take for granted or forget even really to think about the extent to which this information ecology is so distinct and particular in world history. So. To date, the main way that we've studied the relationship between the authority of the throne and the bureaucracy of the empire, or as Silas Wu put it, command and control in the late empire, is through systems of communication and decision-making that center around the authority of the emperor and their evolution. So we have scholarship on particularly the Hongwu emperor and especially the Yongzheng emperor, but others as well that place the evolution of systems of communication and decision-making in the context of what's usually referred to either as a shorthand or very explicitly as the development of autocracy. So from very early on in the scholarship of Chinese history, we have played with this idea that somehow the Chinese emperor was uniquely able or particularly able or especially interested in being able to use bureaucratic tools to control this massive empire. Much of the scholarship that's about the evolution of the memorial system and imperial decision-making and command have been based on central archives and central sources. And so they really focus on how information arrives at the court. So we already understand really well from the scholarship how that central picture looks. 
And obviously at the center of the central picture is the person of the emperor. And depending on the dynasty, whether it's the Ming or the Qing and what period within those dynasties, the emperor might be surrounded by a group of advisors or decision makers, either to aid or impede them, depending on the context. So in the case of the late Ming, we often talk about the role that eunuchs play in the final sort of moments of decision making or information disseminating. In the Qing, we have a lot of scholarship about how, especially in the early years of the dynasty, there's the strong influence of councils and princes of the blood. We have the scholarship of Bartlett and others as well, tracking the evolution of the Grand Council. So for different periods, there are different particular institutional arrangements. But let's say simply that for all of the late empire, if the emperor is at the center, there is usually some set of people who might be institutionalized or might not be institutionalized who aid in the emperor's decision-making power. And there's a lot of concern about the extent to which those people are able to exert influence. And many of our histories of late imperial bureaucracy and imperial authority focus around those relationships. But we also know that in the capital, whether that's in Nanjing or Beijing, there is a massive bureaucracy. And we tend to talk about that massive bureaucracy in terms of the six ministries, largely because this ministerial division that very purposefully imitates the structure of the Tang legal code, which is divided up into rights, war, personnel, revenue, works, and punishment, is the sort of scheme of the civil administration, as well as the scheme of the legal code. And interestingly, is the way that even county level yamen are organized. So I think for the average legal historian or institutional historian, depending on what facet of the late empire you work on, one or multiple of those six ministries might be incredibly important. The six ministries are used as a shorthand because in fact, there are many other offices in the capital, including many of which are infrequently studied. But at any rate, if we conceive of the emperor at the center, and his advisors or his council around the center, the imperial bureaucracy is generally conceived in the scholarship as the formal, fairly professional group of officials who are dedicated to keeping the machinery of the state humming. And in the past, traditionally, because of the interest in autocracy, there's generally been a fascination with the extent to which the emperor and his advisors represent an inner court, and then the imperial bureaucracy represents an outer court. So, for example, Frederick Moat, following Chen Mu and others, theorizes that the sort of balance of all of Chinese history can be conceived of or thought about or discussed in terms of the relationships between the inner and outer factions of the central bureaucracy. And much of the scholarship about the relationship between communication and command really builds on this tension between what is inside and outside of the palace walls. I, however, came to the study of the central archive and the authority of the throne as a local historian who had done a lot of work in county level archives. And so the way that I tend to think about the structure of the late imperial bureaucracy as it informs my work is more in terms of connection rather than in terms of contention. I think that we really have preserved a kind of zero sum game perspective in thinking about power in the late empire. But what really interests me in particular is how power emerges out of networks and shared relationships and communications and 
decision-making processes instead of decision-making power. So for me, when I think about the late imperial bureaucracy, I imagine an emperor at the center of it, whose final word, whose final approval, whose personal signature or rescript on a memorial is required to make everything that is legally his domain flow through the bureaucracy. So the emperor, whether he's a six-year-old child or a 60-year-old man, is personally required to attend to every affair that by law falls under the dynastic prerogative. So in this system, because of the impossibility of the workload, there are any number of people who are designed not only to help the emperor make decisions and learn information about the rest of the empire, but to break it down into digestible bits. And so for me, and this is why the notion of routine is incredibly important to the monograph, I tend to see every office in the empire as playing some role in formalizing or routinizing information about what's happening throughout the empire. And so that means that things look very different in each office, uh, and they look different at different levels of the administrative hierarchy, because all of these offices are working together to extract information from lived realities in far-flung territories across the empire and insert them into these highly routinized and stylized information processes that are all exchanged and understood in bureaucratic language. And so for me, that entire system of reporting on the ground that feeds into memorials that are destined for imperial approval or decision and still have to travel through imperial bureaucracy is what I describe as the central review system. So any form of budget that has to be approved or a legal sentence that has to have the personal approval of the emperor, all of these distinct processes are a part of the central review system, which is built on the back of the notion that the emperor can directly make decisions about events happening all over the empire using the memorial system. So how did you explain what a memorial was to this Russian historian? <laughs> it's one of those things where I had never really thought about it. So for me, and I think at the time, what I said to my colleague, the thing that distinguishes a memorial from all other genres is that it's meant for the consumption of one individual in particular, and that individual is the emperor. But there are a lot of things about the Chinese memorial that would distinguish it from genres that could be thus described in other early modern empires. And here I'm really inspired by all of the work that's been done on late imperial sort of information cultures and on late imperial administration and bureaucracy. So Chelsea Wong's work on not just communication, but also infrastructure and logistics in the Ming Empire is a real touchstone. Also, Emily Makros's and Zhang Ting's work on circulation of information are critical, I think, in understanding that broader context in which the memorial exists. And I love the fact that we're in a moment that we're revisiting these kind of classic questions that I think probably five or seven years ago would have seemed a little traditional <laughs> and therefore boring, but are newly exciting again. So when you were explaining this bureaucratic practice, you used the word routine, right? This is a routine and these things are routinized. Yet the title of your book is Uncertainty in the Empire of Routine. And in the subtitle, I right, used the word unexpected administrative revolution. So what was this unexpected thing that happened that led to uncertainty in the Qing state? 
The unexpected administrative revolution comes after the uncertainty and not the other way around. I see. So because all of the forms of information that are being presented to the emperor have to be formalized, codified, stylized, and processed simply so that they can clear through this massive system. Therefore, everybody who participates in the system at every level, from a magistrate all the way up to the throne, knows that what's being exchanged is not a faithful, subjective, rich, or contradictory account that would reflect any particular reality. This is the price of a highly centralized system of decision-making like the memorial system. If you're going to process that volume of information, you simply have to extract the types of information that are not absolutely necessary to the decision-making process. And because everyone knows that this is a system built to some extent on artificial tropes and on formulae that cleave more closely to bureaucratic rationales than to lived rationales. Therefore, one can never be certain about the extent to which what is being represented is faithful in the right way. And the fundamental form of uncertainty that exists just because of the nature of the system, independent of any particular event or phenomenon, is the result of this compromise of massive amount of highly routinized information rather than information that delivers the kind of chaotic high fidelity of lived experience. And then the second form of uncertainty that's really central to the story that I wound up telling is the real solicitude and concern that you see in late imperial writings and I certainly mean both for the Ming and Qing and other earlier times as well, about the extent to which the state might, in the course of its operation, actually harm the state. There's real concern about the real possibility that officials might abuse the subjects of the empire, that officials might seek opportunities for personal profit over the greater good of the empire. There's a real anxiety about the state itself that I think the late imperial empires were uniquely attuned to in early modern history. And for that reason, one of the things that the early Qing emperors and the early Qing courts that I happened to study in the post-conquest context in the monograph really do an excellent job of is articulating the extent to which this principal agent problem at the heart of all empires plagues them and leads them to search for cures to this uncertainty about whether or not people are acting on your behalf faithfully. Can you give an example of what exactly they were uncertain about? Yeah. One of my favorite anecdotes is when the Shunja emperor, I think was 11 or 12, I don't know off the top of my head, he received a report from a censor about Jirli. So right in his backyard, that there were all sorts of cases backlogged. And because of all of these cases that weren't being sent to the throne and decided upon, there were humans being detained because they were waiting for the decision of the emperor. And 
because at the time the Qing didn't have any regulations requiring that things get reported to the throne that weren't yet ready to be fully reported to the throne. <laughs> the Shunzhou emperor had no way of knowing that hundreds of people were just rotting in jail. And this realization is a classic sort of example of what happens repeatedly over the first hundred years of the Qing, which is some conscientious official will inform the emperor of something happening or a really large mistake will happen. And all of a sudden the central court becomes aware that it wasn't tracking some activity that was actually capable of causing a great deal of harm or allowing for a great deal of corruption or malfeasance. And so the emperor or his officials will then quickly and eagerly try to like shore up whatever element in the information regime was lacking or loose or not doing its job in order to then learn about what information is needed to adequately govern and control these points of potential conflict and harm. I see. So you have the uncertainty first, and then you have the revolution. Well, now that the court is aware that it's missing all these information, what did it try to do? It's pretty intuitive, right? If you keep learning about problems that you don't have information about, you want more information. <laughs> and the thing that really separates the early, like post-conquest Qing from its predecessor, the Ming, is that they were really good at gathering that information. So we know that the Ming had an elaborate and actually fascinating sensorial system for spot checking its territorial administrations. And we know that in the Ming, all sorts of information was being delivered to the throne, not just from the sensorial system, but from secret information networks and also just from rank and file administrators. But what the Qing manages to do is to institutionalize these information demands in ways that compel the entire bureaucracy to respond. And in contrast to the Ming, where you see a wealth of information on certain things that the throne becomes interested in, but I think historians have a lot of doubt about the usefulness of that information. In the Qing, we just see a flood of information. And there's so much of it that actually most historians don't study it because a lot of it's really boring because you just have offices reporting on what they're doing all of the time. And the further in you go, the more frequently they're reporting about more things. And you can understand this in half an hour at the first historical archives in Beijing. If you just look at five different reports from the Qianlong era, and five different reports from, say, the Xianfeng era, you will see completely different reports. Everything in the Xianfeng era will be more frequent. It will have more items. The items will be described in more detail. And there will be less variety. It will be more legalistic. It will be more technical. In the Yongzheng or Qianlong eras, you see stuff that's highly idiosyncratic. Some of the reports are deep and involved. Most of them aren't there because they were never sent. And the thing that the Qing really achieves over the course of the first hundred years after their conquest of the Ming is creating series of information demands that the entire bureaucracy has to comply with. But something that's really important to this story is that 
these information demands often rely on generating new documentation at the local level. So it's not like asking someone to give you information that they already have. They have to require local offices to create new information. And so something that becomes really important to the story is that even though the Qing is able to compel people to share more information from more points in the administrative hierarchy, however, it takes a really long time for that information to flow back to the capital. Sometimes a generation, sometimes multiple generations even, are required to build up that infrastructure before Beijing can get what it wants. Wow, that's so interesting. And I have you know, just so many questions about this new information regime. But I'm curious, because you mentioned the situation with the Ming, and my research is on the Ming military. And what I've been finding in the primary sources is that to prevent soldiers from deserting the main court will often have the battalions or the guard officials collect and archive information on the soldiers and their households. They order the compilation of different registers and then have these registers be kept at different levels, different copies we made. But it wasn't all that successful. One of the reasons being that officials had to pay for these registers out of pocket, so they had no real incentive to produce them. So I'm just curious how the Qing was able to get officials at the local level to produce this new information. Why was the Qing more successful in this than the Ming? I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about all of my friends who study the Ming, who least want to hear a Qing historian talking <laughs> about the Qing being more successful than the Ming. So I'll answer part of your question, but I won't specifically answer that. There are two things that strike me as fairly remarkable about what the Qing achieves on the back of the Ming information ecology. So I describe the entire late imperial information ecology of the bureaucracy or the state as a distributed imperial archive. And that's precisely the sort of thing that you were just describing, which is that every office can be conceived as a local office, right? The Ministry of Punishment is local to Beijing. But the county magistrate who reports on a homicide is local to the county where it happened. The governor is local to the provincial administration that oversees the magistrate. So every office in the empire could be conceived in terms of hierarchy, but it can also be conceived in terms of what it has its eyes on, what information is traveling through that office. And there is an expectation that each office will maintain at the highest possible level of fidelity the sorts of information that are necessary for its own job. But unless you're going to fully reduplicate every office inside of every office, which I think would lead to some sort of paradox or riddle, you have to allow that information to exist at the highest fidelity only in its localized iteration. And so what that means is that while people are maintaining their own records, the other parts of the bureaucracy depend on the representations of local offices about the local situation or the highest fidelity information. And everyone understands that these things will be exerted from the general context. So that is true for both the Ming and the Qing dynasties. What the Qing does that I find particularly interesting is they wrap documentary responsibility or responsibility for documenting administrative actions into administrative actions themselves. And 
Generally, I think that this innovation is the product of the Yongzheng administration. So it's not even that early in the Qing. But what we see happening is a growing number of requirements to document normal administrative actions. And eventually, along with those requirements, we start to see more connections in this information ecology between offices at critical points. So to use your earlier example, it is still the case that every office up and down the administrative hierarchy has the copies of the population registers of all of its subordinate offices. But the thing that's different in the Qing from the Ming is that more information about those registers is being shared at more points in the day-to-day routine operation of the administration. And so what that means is that it becomes easier and easier to access and locate that information. Whereas in the Ming, from fairly early on, and here I'm drawing on the work of Devin Fitzgerald, we see a sort of rampant and widespread concern about the loss of information or the generation of information completely outside of a state context. And so the Qing does a really good job of linking information to administration. One of the arguments that you put forth in your book is that the Qing has this demand for information and it gets more information, but as more information comes in, it's also hungrier for even more information and creates this loop where it's constantly collecting information, also demanding more information. And so my question is, how is that being processed? Because it would seem that every office will have to compile all these different documents and then send it up, and then there will have to be people processing them on every level. And as you just said earlier, it takes a very long time for this information to flow to Beijing. Wouldn't this lead to a very bloated bureaucracy where people are just pushing paperwork around? I mean, I think that's certainly one of the things that we see historical actors expressing. There is a sense that we might be becoming just bureaucrats and that we might be getting farther and farther away from what it is that we're supposed to be doing. I think also recognizing the exponential growth of information demands, specifically bureaucratic information demands over the long durée from the middle of the 17th to the early 19th century, also helps us understand and contextualize what has been discussed as the emergence of a statecraft movement. I think that one of the things that happens is that the offices closest to the ground in the counties and in the provinces get more expert at producing the types of information that are required. And for example, Pierre-Tenville in his beautiful corpus of work, not just in a single piece, but in many of his writings on the history of statecraft and writings about state and administration, has noted repeatedly that there's a lack of art or a lack of maybe even philosophy in later Qing manuals and writings about administration as compared to the early Qing or the Ming. And I think that part of the impetus of that is a real pressure in the day-to-day to produce the right sorts of very large amounts of information that simply weren't present in the Ming, those demands. So would you 
say that over time, the purpose of this gathering this information changes. Like, for example, using the, the prison example that you gave, it seems that, well, the stranger emperor becomes aware that there are these backlog of cases and there's people rotting in jail. So he collects information on that. And then maybe 100, 200 years later, would this information still be used the same way to check if there are backlog of cases? Or is it simply part of the administrative routine that, okay, if you did this, you're good. If you didn't, then you get punished. Yeah, I think the first part of that is to say, once you start demanding new information, it's really hard to give up. <laughs> there are moments, um, especially in the Qianlong reign, when both administrators in the provinces and officials in the court, as well as the emperor himself, complain that it's too much. And they complain that because it's too much, people are just rehearsing routines. And that's actually a really important part of the impact of this unexpected administrative revolution is that the more information you have, the less satisfying it begins to seem, especially when you're demanding so much information from people that they're just furiously <laughs> writing reports to send. So I think that first thing is that the information that you gain is that it's not all that you need to solve the problem. And so there's a sort of despair inside of the success of the Qing state's ability to capture more and more information. But I think the second thing that's really interesting about the question that you just asked is that when there are so many information demands about so many things, because so many loopholes or problems in the machinery of the state are uncovered, that we start to see new reports about all sorts of things. We have such a growth of information that there's just a whole new constellation of data that from the middle of the 18th century forward can be interacted with one another in order to generate information about things that the state wasn't even thinking about. Really, from the middle of the 18th century forward, we start to see truly statistical approaches to thinking about conceptualizing and understanding the empire. And so the Shunzhou Emperor's request for reports on people who are waiting in prisons for cases that aren't yet resolved can not only be used to measure the efficacy of the justice system or the failure of a governor or a judicial commissioner to process these cases, it could also later wind up being used in a survey of the fiscal commitments of a certain province. Because then you have, in addition to data about the prisons, you have information about which offices are spending how much money on prisons. And you could cross-reference that against the number of prisoners to, for example, distinguish between how well or how poorly people are using resources. And so once this administrative revolution is really completed by the middle of the 18th century, you start to see potential ways of scrutinizing information that were never part of the design. Although once they are all linked together, it becomes perfectly intuitive and obvious. Wow, that's very interesting to think that they have these statistics that they can cross-reference and generate new information. So I assume that's one of the unintended consequences that this revolution has brought. Yeah, I think it's really important in historical research while you're developing a thesis to have a really clear idea of what you expect to be different across some threshold. It can be an arbitrary threshold, or if you think some particular event happened in some particular time, it can be a very specific threshold. 
But I think it's really important as you're thinking things through to set challenges for yourself. Okay, if this story that I'm telling is what actually happened, when I go into the archives next week, I should be able to compare these sorts of reports from these different time periods and see these sorts of differences. And one of the tough things about research is that sometimes your intuition is wrong and the hypothesis isn't borne out. But I was frankly surprised at the extent to which this difference between the information ecology of the late 19th century forward and the information ecology before that really are completely different from one another. And we see it reflected in all sorts of genres, many of which I discuss in detail uh, in the monograph, but actually several of which I didn't even put in it because at the end of the day, people only want to read so much information about reports. (laughs) (laughs) So do you see any legacy of this Qing information ecology that still plays out in China today? Or has this information ecology been dismantled after the Qing collapsed? I'm loath to assert yet that there are specific institutions or trends or phenomena that are the direct outcome of these institutions. Although I believe that is the case and I have my own personal guesses and I hope that in future research or in collaboration with other scholars or best case scenario in the work of scholars who are inspired by this book to go think through this problem in later periods to see how many of those hunches are borne out. But what I will say is this hunger for information, this dismay almost about the inability of the state to solve the problems of the state And this concern about the extent to which you can't govern correctly without really knowing or understanding how faithful your actors are and how well they're representing realities on the ground by the early 20th century really fuels this sense of political crisis that will consume the empire in an age of what I think Philip Kuhn very correctly identifies as a constitutional crisis. And I think traditionally we've thought about that constitutional crisis as arising from several like very tangible problems, problems having to do with overpopulation or outflows of silver or increased violence or contention between local officials and subjects. And I don't think that my book would overturn any of those conclusions, but I would ask people to consider the extent to which this constitutional crisis is actually a real transformation in the way that people relate to one another and the ways that local and lived realities are represented up and down the imperial hierarchy. And I think that the questions that are dredged up and the tensions or the contentions that are like dragged out into the light by this unexpected administrative revolution are still operating in the post-imperial context. Although of course, 
with the introduction of other forms of political organization, that context rapidly changes. So I will be very curious myself to hear what historians of the 20th and 21st century imagine about the extent to which these dynamics, which I characterize as campaign-based governance and self-hatred of bureaucracy in the state, unfold in later eras. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering China today is still a very bureaucratic state. I'm guessing some of these problems might have carried over, but it's also interesting that aside from new forms of political organizations, you mentioned we also have new forms of media. They didn't have newspapers back in the Shenzhou era. And that was something that I was really surprised about when I was writing this book. I initially wanted to write this book to answer some questions that I had about the relationship between local administrations and the central administration. It seemed like a really simple question. But the more that I wandered into this world, the more I found myself thinking through a lot of the questions that I have today about the relationship between information, data, representation, political reality, and the way that all of these things come together or fail to come together to constitute a political body. I hope that the example of the Qing actually is easier to digest and think through because it's an early modern context than the context that we're living in today. But I was genuinely surprised at the extent to which I found myself thinking through questions in the present. This has been a very fascinating interview. I certainly learned a lot and I look very forward to reading your book, which will be out this summer. I assume will be available for purchase on Amazon. And every place where fine books are sold. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Amy. It was a real pleasure. No, thank you. So that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.